Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. I am calling this hour, Take It to the Mat. We're going to talk to two mats in this hour. We're going to talk with Matthew Sorens from World Relief about what is going on around the world uh, and calling Christians to not only care, but care for uh, the most vulnerable globally, not just uh, our neighbors right here next door, down the street, but our neighbors around the world. We're also going to talk with Matt Bennett about his new book, 40 Questions About Islam. We are in the midst of Ramadan. It seemed like a good time for us to uh, get our questions answered about Islam in order that we might engage lovingly in conversations with those of uh, Islamic belief. So before I bring Matthew Sorens on, I want to lift up um, a report from the AARP. That's the, uh, you know, American Association of Retired People. Okay, so um, they are reporting on the state of caregiving in the United States, finding that nearly one in five adults is actually serving right now as what they're describing as an unpaid caregiver for an adult with health or other functional problems. That number is up from one in six in uh, 2015. So what we're saying is nearly a quarter of us are caring for another person. And we're describing that as unpaid caregiving. Okay, and I just want you to just pause right there for a moment. Um, and, and, I'm, and I don't want to minimize how difficult it is to care for a loved one um, who is disabled in some way or is, suffers chronic mental health uh, issues or is suffering um, from dementia or Alzheimer's. I mean, let's go down the list. I, I, I am not minimizing how hard this is. What I want to provoke us to discuss and think about is the language of unpaid caregiver. Um, and, I, and I want us to consider what it means for us to care for one another um, out of the tremendous resources that God gives us and provides for us. Um, and this, this idea that we must be paid in order to do anything. Um, or that our value is based in whether or not and how much we get paid to do something. There's a there's a call to be willing to help, and there is a responsibility uh, that is set upon those who are in a position or able to respond, responsible, able to respond. And so there's an, then this question of willingness. Do I pass by the person in need on the other side of the road because, frankly, the thing that I am going to do or to tend to is um, of greater importance than the welfare of the person whom I am passing by, even though I recognize that they are broken and helpless. And obviously I am, you know, lifting up the Good Samaritan teaching of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So um, who are we willing to help? 
And do we have to get paid for it? What does that look like? Uh, Not only in our culture, but as we survey the desperation of the needs of those around the world. Um, One headline out of L.A. I found particularly disturbing this morning. Um, We have been talking here on the program uh, about the the fears that many of us have related to people who are not safe at home, people who are required to remain at home inside a locked house with their abuser. And so um, the police department, the uh, the sheriff's department in L.A. County um, was making an offer to uh, the Department of Children's Services to uh, have police officers go and just do welfare checks um, on on places where uh, on homes where um, there's concern for the welfare of a child because they haven't checked in with school because they haven't. I mean, go down the list of of places and spaces where these children have not been um, heard from since the pandemic began. Uh, the Department of Children's Services has declined the offer of the sheriff's department because having a police officer knock on your door um, is considered uh, stress producing. And so uh, we don't want to risk producing stress in someone's life in order to check on the welfare of a child. That's where that's the point to which we have arrived in our particular culture. All right. We're going to um, talk with Matthew Sorens um, about things happening outside the borders and boundaries of the United States of America today. Even as we uh, reel from COVID-19, it's important for us to recognize the devastating effects um, that this virus is having in places and spaces where people do not have access um, to the kinds of supplies and resources that we have here in the United States. Matthew Sorens from World Relief, up next. Joining me now is Matthew Sorens. He works with an organization called World Relief. I'm going to have him remind us the scope of the work of World Relief. Matt is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for uh, for World Relief. He is um, he is also the co-author of Welcoming the Stranger: Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. Uh, and we have we have had him here on the program several uh, several times before. Matthew, welcome back. Thanks so much, Carmen. It's good to be with you. Yeah, thank you. Remind us, um, you know, how do you frame just sort of what World Relief is and what you guys do? Yeah, so World Relief is, uh, first of all, we're the compassionate service arm of the National Association of Evangelicals, and we've been that since the 1940s when we began. Our mission is to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable, and we do that uh, both in various countries around the world. Over our history, we've actually been, I think, about 100 countries, um, uh, often in response to disasters, but then also longer term as well and in development contexts. And then we're in the U.S. as well. Um, we do refugee resettlement and serve other immigrants uh, in the U.S. context. So the same mission all over the world, but it looks a little bit different in Kenya than it does in you know, Minneapolis. But we're doing this in various places. So I think that's uh, that's the conversation that we want to have with you today. It does look different in Kenya than it does in Minneapolis. It definitely, you know, it looks different in Central America or South Asia right now than it does here in the United States. Talk with us about the inequalities of global health and what um, people around the world are experiencing right now yeah. in the midst of this pandemic. Yeah, well, and I, I should start by saying I know that it is um, understandable that 
most Americans, including myself, are thinking about ourselves right now and about our immediate families and about our local churches, which are struggling without being able to meet in person in many cases. And uh, this is totally, to use what's almost a cliche now, an unprecedented situation. So I think we're all kind of all hands on deck thinking about our own situation, which is really quite serious in the United States, both on a health level and on an economic level. But what can happen sometimes when we're focused on ourselves is we forget that uh, there are people who have it even more more difficult than we do at this moment. And I was struck by that. Um, my last trip, um, well, nearly my last trip before I got grounded and have been in my house for two months was to Kenya, where World Relief has been active for many years, working with um, groups of local churches in a few different parts of the country to address um, situations of extreme poverty. And I was there you know, just before coronavirus was really on our radar in the United States, but it was enough of an issue in Kenya that they took our temperatures on the way in. They didn't take my temperature coming back to the United States, but they wanted to make sure into Kenya that they were not bringing this disease in. Hey, Paul, did we lose Matt? Just be like to be likely to be much more devastating than in the U.S. Sorry, am I breaking up? Yeah. Hey, um, Matt, we're going to have to reconnect with you. So, um, Paul, let's just go ahead and take our uh, very brief break right here. Um, Matthew Sorens from World Relief and I will continue this conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. All right, we continue to read international headlines about the tremendous dis- distress in, let's say, refugee camps around the world. Um, but increasingly in in what we would have considered just a few months ago, fairly well-developed countries who have run out of hospital beds and um, and now have critically ill people um, who are dying in their cars in parking lots um, outside of hospitals. So we have a crisis um, going on around the world. And as Christians, um, we we do not want to be so focused on what is happening in our own homes and here at home that we fail to lift our eyes and our hearts of concern um, for those around the world. So continuing my conversation now with Matthew Sorens, he is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization at World Relief. Matt, we might have to back up about a minute um, so that we don't miss uh, what you were saying there. Um, I, we, I think we're in the middle of a conversation about this being an opportunity uh, to share in the suffering with others uh, and come alongside them. Yeah, and I apologize for my probably my Wi-Fi tech difficulties, but um, I was saying, you know, I think it's totally understandable that we're in a hard spot right now in the United States context with this unprecedented pandemic. But the situation for especially for our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world, and I think especially in in sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, is likely to become even much more dire. Um, Just if you look at the healthcare infrastructure in place. Um, you know, here in the United States, uh, there's been points where there's questions of if we have enough doctors in certain communities. Uh, but we have roughly 26 doctors per 10,000 people overall in the United States. That's, um, you know, a fairly good level f- compared to other countries. In sub-Saharan Africa, there are two doctors for 10,000 people. I mean, it's one, 13 times fewer doctors per capita. And some of the medical, you know, if you look at masks or uh, other personal protective equipment or ventilators. I mean, one of my colleagues in Africa said, it's not a question of if we have ventilators here. We don't have oxygen. Um, there's I mean, there's just mm. not enough to keep people alive if they get very severely sick. 
And then there's the economic dynamics of this, which we are, you know, many people are struggling in the U.S. right now. Um, and I'm not at all discounting how serious that is. Uh, but it's it's all the more compounded in a place like sub-Saharan Africa or Central America where there's people living on $2 a day to begin with. And if they're told to stop the spread of the disease, you can't go out of your home. They don't have food to eat for a week. And um, there's real issues of, of hunger and, and even the risk of starvation. So it's a really dire situation. And I'm mindful that that is impacting people who of, of various backgrounds. But many of them, especially in Africa or Latin America, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are parts of the world that in many ways are more Christian than the United States is at this point. So, Matt, when we talk about what we can do, um, what are you calling Christians to do uh, in the United States of America right now on behalf of the global church? You know, yeah, I think it's really important that we stand, uh, that American churches stand with the global church right now. And part of that can be financial. There's good organizations. World Relief is one, but there's others as well that are working with local churches in various parts of the world to bring them together and help them both spread best practices in terms of public health, how to not get the disease, hand washing, hygiene, all those things, and then to respond when the disease does come and respond to the economic effects that are happening already. Um, literally just, you know, making sure people have adequate food. And, you know, I, I know that's a hard ask when churches in the U.S. are struggling, when ind individuals in the U.S. are struggling. But I will say, personally, you know, I just recently got a $3,900 check from the government, or actually a direct deposit um, from the you know, the stimulus package that our government passed, and that's, you know, me and my wife and kids. And my first reaction with that was we should renovate our bathroom, which is, you know, it's probably good for the economy, but give somebody some extra work. But my wife challenged me and she said, you know, we need, we need to give at least part of that to care for some of our own neighbors here in the U.S., but also those beyond the U.S. who aren't going to get a $1,200 check. And of course, that's most of the world that their governments couldn't, you know, couldn't handle $1,200 checks to every every citizen. So I think it's an opportunity for us to think about being generous and, and putting the needs of others above ourselves. And, um, you know, I think it's a very biblical message. I've been reflecting a lot on Second Corinthians 8, where the Apostle Paul tells the, um, the church in Corinth, he is challenging them to grow in the grace of giving and to recognize, in this case, it was a church in Jerusalem that was in particular need. And um, it's a really powerful passage to read through if, you know, if people have some time in their quiet times or devotional times to just really reflect on what that what the parallel might be in today's world. I'm tempted to just ask you to tell us a story. Um, I know that you uh, that you recently wrote for um, for the Gospel Coalition. And if people want to go check it out, it's called COVID-19 is Ravaging the Global Church. Matthew Sorens is the author. Um, in here, you um, you share a story of a friend. And I realize this reaches back a number of years and the context is not the pandemic. Um, but but tell us this story, because I do think it's illustrative of um, the challenges people are facing around the world. Yeah, well, and it's so um, 2005, I was a Wheaton College student and spent six months as an internship in Nicaragua, actually with World Relief Nicaragua. And um, they set me up living with this particular family, wonderful, amazing Christian family that I'm still quite close to. But I had a host brother, a, a young man in that family of my exact same age. Um, we were both at the time about 22. And um, we just became really good friends. Um, he's, you know, he was really interested in theology and politics. He knew about, as much about U.S. politics as I did and had a lot to teach me about Nicaraguan politics. 
And so we were just really dear friends, but he also was fighting leukemia. And I think I kind of naively didn't know what that meant when I got there because I've, you know, known a few people who had leukemia in the United States. It's very difficult and some people die from it clearly, but also a lot of people beat it in the United States. And what I learned pretty quickly is almost nobody beats it in Nicaragua. And that's because they just don't have the infrastructure. Um, they don't have, literally, I would go to the hospital and I'd spend a lot of time in that public hospital in Nicaragua with Silvio towards the end of my time. His mom would have to go to different blood banks with her own cooler trying to find enough platelets to be donated to him. Um, at one point, I went to a different country to try to find chemotherapy drugs um, because they just were not available in Nicaragua. And that's the reality in so many countries is there's just not the access to healthcare that we expect in the United States or expect that at least if you can pay for in the United States, you could access. And so Silvio died um, a couple months after I came back to the US. Uh, he was 22. And for me, it just really struck me that this inequality in terms of global health, and I mean, I, I want to be clear, because Silvio is a believer, and I know that he is with Christ, and his body will one day be resurrected. And I've, I know that he and his family had a, had a full confidence in that and have that full confidence. But it also speaks to a, a reality as we think about access to health, that there's an opportunity for the church to step into that and to help mm -hmm. as many people as we can when we have at least some resources to do so. Matthew Sorens, um, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for what you do every day. Thank you for calling us um, to lift up our eyes to the concerns of our brothers and sisters around the world, um, even as, you know, we've become pretty obsessed with our own concerns as well. So, um, so thank you. Thank you, my brother, so much. Thank you, Carmen. Absolutely. You guys can find Matt Sorens at World Relief. We'll be right back. Really interesting follow-on to that conversation. The uh, The Guardian is reporting, quote, surrogates are left holding the baby as the coronavirus strands parents. Now think about that for just a moment. The surrogacy business is what is described. The commodification of children is what is at issue. You can uh, certainly find that just by Googling the word surrogate today. It is, uh, it is a lead article in The Guardian. All right, next up. Uh, a conversation with Matthew Bennett about his new book, 40 Questions About Islam. Matthew lived for seven years in North Africa and the Middle East, intimately familiar with Islam. He is uh, now offering very practical answers to the questions we're all asking about it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Licato. Whatever it is that's troubling you, you'll get through this. Cancel your escape to the Himalayas. Forget the deserted island. This is no time to be a hermit. Pray, lean on God's people, be a barnacle on the boat of God's church. Matthew 18, 20 says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Don't quit. Don't hide. Would the sick avoid the hospital? The hungry avoid the food pantry? Would the discouraged abandon God's hope distribution center? Only at great risk. God is waiting on you, my friend. He is with you. Your family may have left. Your supporters may be gone. Your counselor may be silent, but God has not budged. His promise in Genesis 28, 15 still stands. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. This is Max Lucado. You will get through this. Your plans still prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fight and the flood. 
I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Matthew Bennett. Uh, he serves now on the faculty at Cedarville University, but he has lived and served in North Africa and the Middle East. He currently teaches the Bible and the Gospel, theology and urban missiology, contemporary world missions, global theology and world religions. He's joining us today to talk about his a brand new book, 40 Questions About Islam. Matt, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much, Carmen. It's great to be with you. So this is a very uh, this is a very comprehensive book. In addition to um, the parts that cover the history of Islam and the practice of Islam, I found um, parts two and three really like in terms of the questions that are asked and answered there, just so helpful. So um, first of all, talk about just how comprehensive the book is. And then if we can, I would love to have conversations about the sources of authority and the theology of Islam in terms of, you know, how, how we as Christians learn to relate to so many people around the world who are practitioners of this faith. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the intent of the book is to serve as kind of a primer to Islam in giving some of the, the basic overview. But uh, I also I have a burden for seeing Muslims encounter the gospel and do so in a way that they can understand. And so at each one of those junctures, I'm trying to present some of the ways that uh, the Islamic history, the Islamic th- theology, and some of the ways that Muslims think uh, is affecting the way that they're actually going to receive the gospel message, things that might appear to be be uh, shared ground or common ground uh, actually oftentimes end up obscuring some of our communication. And so in picking through some of these things, I'm trying to walk that fine line of not being antagonistic or pejorative, um, trying to be as charitable with those sources as possible in order to show that when I talk about the gospel, there's a number of things that uh, that may conceptually seem to fit within an Islamic worldview, but ultimately when they hear those words, they're actually thinking of a very different concept. And so my the attempt is to be able to help to dig beneath some of that superficial similarity and see, okay, what is my Muslim friend thinking and how is that different than the way that I, I think I'm communicating uh, the message of Scripture? So the book uh, is structured around 40 questions. And again, the title is 40 Questions About Islam. Uh, it's structured around questions. And when I got to the questions related to the sources of authority for Islam in in part two of the book, the very first question is, what is the Quran? And so I'd love for you to answer that. But then question eight, and I may mispronounce this, what is the Sunnah? I will tell you, this was new information to me. So typically, uh, for a Christian looking at Islam, we would think, okay, the, the Quran is simply the uh, the Muslim version of the Bible. Um, and so when a, a Muslim picks up the, the Quran, they're going to study it the same way as I, as a Christian, I'm going to study the Bible in order to shape my life around it. And yet in reality, the, the Quran functions quite differently. Part of it is because um, the Quran itself is, uh, it's bound to the Arabic language, and not even just the Arabic language, but the Arabic language spoken in the seventh century. And so you've got a a real distance between contemporary uh, Muslims who are reading the Quran and and committing it to memory uh, and the way that they would naturally speak today. And so for a lot of Muslims who are reading the Bible or reading the the Quran, they find themselves reciting it and memorizing it, but not necessarily unpacking its meaning. For that, they they turn to what's known as the, the Sunnah, which is uh, it's a body of literature traditionally compiled about 200 years, beginning 200 years after Muhammad's death, looking at um, the the apparent biography of Muhammad, which then gives them the ability to say, okay, I don't really understand 
the Quran or the verses of the Quran itself. But when Muhammad received these verses, this is how he responded. And so I can mimic Muhammad's life or I can follow his teaching because I believe that he is perfectly applying the Quran to his situation. And so I can follow his example without necessarily having to wrestle with or understand the meaning of the Quran explicitly for myself. So when you ask the question, which is more influential in shaping a, a Muslim's approach to the world or their living out of their faith, really it's that secondary body of literature known as the Sunnah, the, the teachings of Muhammad traditionally compiled as well as his biography that helps a person to, uh, to apply uh, their, their faith to their life. Again, I am talking with Dr. Matthew Bennett. We are talking about his new book, 40 Questions About Islam. Um, the the question, what is Sharia law, is, I think, really important and helpful for us today. We hear references to, to Sharia and Sharia law. Help us understand what it is. Yeah, there's there's a lot of misconception that comes uh, comes into the American mind when we hear some of the words that have come to us through through news channels. Um, things like Sharia have been part of the Western vocabulary since the 70s and coming out of Iran and coming out of uh, various places in Saudi. We've received this word and usually it's bound together with some sort of uh, violent theonomy um, where people are living in a society where they get their hands chopped off for stealing and things like that. And so we, we kind of associate this word with a very specific expression of Islamic law. When in reality, Sharia is is really just the application of the Islamic principles to a person's life. It's a way of living out their uh, their faith. It's a it's a much broader term than maybe the way that we've received it from some of the the news sources that have informed our understanding of this word. And so, Sharia is not necessarily this word that we need to be frightened about, but rather it's something that uh, that includes an entire way of of living out one's Islam. Uh, one thing that's very different for a Muslim than maybe a Western Christian is that they don't compartmentalize their their sacred life versus some of their secular life. And so the the teachings of Islam permeate every aspect of society. This is the attempt to live out Sharia or the, the straight path of, uh, of following God's revealed will. For Christians okay. who might have a Kuypernian approach, you know, that there's no sphere yeah. of life that is unrelated to the gospel nor, you know, nor escapes the sovereignty of God, you know, nor is there any sphere of life where I as a Christian ought to be operating outside of my identity in Christ, this would make sense to them. Absolutely. So in that sense, some of the places, and I hope that this comes through in the book, some of the places that we might be inclined to uh, see major differences between Christians and Muslims, and uh, we might try to settle in on distinguishing those differences, some of those things are actually not as essential of a difference as, as they may initially present themselves. And that's a great example for me as a Christian who sees my identity in Christ permeating every aspect of my life. There's a sense in which the concept of Sharia is not as foreign as it maybe uh, maybe sounds, uh, because it does. It does affect everything that we are and everything that we do. So there's a sense in which those initial rubs or points of friction that seem to put Muslims and Christians at a distance are not necessarily the things that we really want to dig into. And that's what I tried to show in this book, that some of the, even things like uh, women covering, women wearing the veil and things like that, though it's something distinct and obvious that 
makes us different or sets sets Muslims apart, those aren't the things that are worth really spending our time digging into, in my opinion. I think we really need to see some of the the major theological and and worldview and even the the narrative, the meta narrative that we tell about the world. Those are the things that maybe use some of the same vocabulary or refer to some of the same characters. But ultimately, when we start inspecting them, they give way to a very different approach to living and certainly a different approach to understanding the God who's worthy of our worship. And those are the things that I think are more essential for us to understand as fundamentally different and divergent than some of the superficial things like uh, the language uh, surrounding Sharia or the living out of one's faith or uh, or even the, the wearing of, of the, the head covering. All right, let's take a very brief break. And then when we come back, Dr. Matthew Bennett, I'm going to ask about um, some of those worldview conversations that you just talked about. Questions 15 through 18 in the book, 40 Questions About Islam, are really uh, centered on worldview. We're going there next on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation now with Dr. Matthew Bennett from Cedarville University. The book is 40 Questions About Islam. Um, Dr. Bennett, let's jump to questions 15 through 18. They're in part three of, of the book. This portion of the book is the theology of Islam. And the four questions, what is the Islamic view of creation, the Islamic view of sin, the Islamic view of salvation, and the Islamic view of the end times. I know we don't have time to cover all four of those, but maybe pick one and walk around in it uh, with us. Yeah, I'd say one of the things that we initially encounter that we might be inclined to say uh, gives us a lot of common ground is that Muslims and, and the Quran teaches that it's merely an extension of the Bible, uh, the extension of what revelation was given to uh, Moses and what revelation was given to Jesus. And therefore, it claims to continue the story that's been told, which means that it does have categories of creation. Um, it even refers to six days of creation uh, multiple times throughout the pages of, of the Quran. Um, and it talks about humans being uh, made to fall uh, from from paradise. They're cast out of the garden. Um, and there's a plan of, uh, of how to return to God and how to uh, be readmitted into paradise ultimately in the end. And so there's a lot of apparent similarity. But when you begin to dig into some of those specific questions like, what is uh, what is the purpose of creation or what is the environment of creation? We begin to see that uh, there's not as much attention given to a God who is creating an orderly environment that he's going to declare to be very good when he puts his image bearers in it and intends to relate directly with them. And that's because the God of the Quran is one who is uh, really ultimately the most transcendent uh, vision of of God as you can have. And we as Christians would certainly say there's an aspect of God that is transcendent and that is beyond us. But one of the things that we see particularly important around our, uh, our gospel message is that our God doesn't remain transcendent, but he actually draws near. And that's been his his stated intention throughout the Old Testament. It's demonstrated in him coming down in the tabernacle and dwelling with his people. It's demonstrated in the Son taking on flesh and dwelling among us as Emmanuel. It's demonstrated in the sending of the Spirit, and ultimately it's the final vision that we will share God's presence. Well, that reality is actually something that's not present in the Quran. 
God remains eternally transcendent, and his, uh, his act of creation brings about humanity, but humanity is not necessarily made for an intimate re- relationship with him. Rather, we, the way, only way that the Quran presents humans relating to God is as a, a slave or a servant would relate to their master. And so we aren't made for God's presence, which means that our imperfections or our failures, our sins, are not necessarily the same sort of um, really weighty issues as they are in Scripture, because our imperfection doesn't endanger us in the presence of a perfect God who would draw near. So sin doesn't necessarily require a savior that would stand in our place, but rather it requires God to be merciful and to overlook our sin. And so this this concept then involves a, a very different starting place for the world, and then ultimately it leads to a place where we don't need a savior, but rather we need a reminder of God's ways. And that's how the Quran refers to itself on multiple occasions. It is a, a book of reminder because humans are inherently fallible and, and weak in our memory. So we don't need a savior, but we need a reminder. And that's why when we get to the question uh, that's been wrestled uh, with uh, for 1,400 years of Christian Islamic dialogue, why did Jesus or did Jesus die on the cross? There's just sort of this ongoing impasse because for our Muslim friends, they say, even if he did die, what would it matter? I have to bear my own sins and I have to uh, be judged on the basis of the life I've lived. No one can take my sins from me. And therefore, the the whole concept of what they're looking for in terms of salvation is not a salvation of someone to stand in their place, someone to take their sins and to cleanse their impurities, but rather they're looking for God to instruct them so that they might be reminded and guided back to the straight way to please him so that at the end they would receive his mercy. And so there's a very different expectation of how humans relate to God, which ultimately shapes the story in a heading in a very different direction. I'm talking with Dr. Matthew Bennett. We are discussing his new book, 40 Questions About Islam. The book is structured um, in, in answer to 40 questions, uh, and it moves through seven parts. Um, the, the sixth and seventh parts, I think, um, Dr. Bennett, would be the ones that I just want to highlight um, here. The development of contemporary critical scholarship, I thought was really informative, sort of how, you know, like, how do we understand some things today that would have been understood differently in the past? And then part seven, the Christian gospel and the followers of Islam. This is really the apologetics, um, you know, intentionally apologetic segment of the book. I would, I would say the entire book is, is really helping uh, the, the Christian understand the worldview of a person who practices Islam, which is in of itself like preparation in apologetics. But in terms of that which is specifically apologetic, uh, you have the last segment. Talk with us about, um, you know, maybe just the very first question in that in that segment, which is, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? A lot of confusion about that today. There is a lot of confusion, and I think one of the clearest reasons for that is that that question is just a bad question. Um, the The reality is we need to unpack the distinctions between the two images of uh, of the one true God presented by the Quran and presented by uh, the Bible with much more nuance than just a yes or no answer. On one hand, you can say, okay, 
is there uh, is there some basic overlap between two faiths that are monotheistic that claim that there's one creator God who's sovereign over all things? Yeah, there's some overlap there in the idea. However, when we start talking about the identity of this God, we find that for the Quran, the Quran is actually not very interested in revealing God himself as much as it reveals the will of God to be followed. Whereas in, uh, in the Bible, we see God himself being a God who draws near, who comes down to Moses in the burning bush. And uh, as I said before, he's a, a God who is transcending his own transcendence to be imminent, to be God with us. And so we see that there's, uh, there's much more about God himself that is revealed in the Christian doctrine of revelation, which uh, parts ways with the God of Islam who remains uh, basically aloof. However, I think the more important question for us is to to invert that question, to, to flip it on its head, because as it's posed, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? It's really a, a human-centric, a, an anthrop anthropocentric question that should be a theocentric question. And I think we do better to ask, does the God of the universe receive the worship of Muslims who are denying the atoning blood of Christ. And from a Christian perspective, from the biblical testimony, we have to say, no, that's a much clearer answer. And that also then gives us a burden to say, we need to be on our knees pleading for our Muslim friends and then engaging in meaningful relationships with them where we can show them the beauty of, uh, of the true biblical Jesus. Which I think would lead us to a way and truth and life conversation, um, and it would be uh, lovely to have time to have that with you. Dr. Matthew Bennett, what a joy to spend this time with you. You guys can find Dr. Bennett on Twitter at mabennett82. You can also find him at Cedarville University. The book is 40 Questions About Islam. Uh, Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for being with us here today on Mornings with Carmen. Oh, Thank you, Carmen. It's been my pleasure. We'll be right back. All right, what are you going to do with the rest of the day that God has given you? Let us uh, make the most of it. How would you make the most of the day that God has set before you to live? I was just to pause and consider that for a moment. How am I going to make the most of the day if I am not going anywhere? How am I going to make the most of the day if I'm, you know, technically not doing anything that the world considers particularly productive? Well, I could pray for the unreached. I could pray for the most vulnerable around the world. I could plant a garden right where I am. Um, I could uh, do some research online or participate uh, maybe in the churches for churches. Uh, what do we call them that? That concert thing, Paul. What's that called? Oh, uh, churches, churches helping, helping church churches. Yes. Yeah. Churches helping churches. Um, they're doing a really cool thing today as well. There's all kinds of opportunities for you to uh, to engage and get involved, even from your own home. So let us make the most of the day that God has given us, and let us make much of God in this day. Okay, so that's really how you can make the most of this day. You can make the most of this day by making much of God today. Make much of him. Make the name of Jesus famous. Lift up, uh, lift up God in your conversations with others online, on the phone. All right. Blessings, grace, peace, mercy. Have a great weekend and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.